Welcome to The Halfling. I'm your host, Jaron Pack, and this is episode 27, Celebrimbor and the Rings of Power. Last time, we started our time with Celebrimbor by laying a kind of half-baked foundation for the essential character. The elf is a skilled craftsman from the beginning, but he starts as a random dude with some cool skills. That's it. From there, he morphs into a critical elven lord who is a descendant of the infamous elven leader and famous craftsman, Feanor, and his son, Quirinir the Crafty. While Celebrimbor inherits his ancestors' artisanal skills, though, he renounces their evil deeds and sets out on his own path. This eventually leads to him founding the region of Erigion, and its glorious capital city of Ost in Ethil. The area is nestled right next to the Misty Mountains, allowing Celebrimbor's people to strike up a friendship with the dwarves. They are also able to trade with them for their marvelous mithril, which the elves want to use in their crafting. And it's this reputation as incredible craftsmen that really is the defining factor not just of Celebrimbor, but of Erigion as a whole. Most elven kingdoms are associated with splendor, but this is often connected with nature. Lothlorien has incredible Malorn trees. Thranduil's realm in Mirkwood is practically homogenous with the trees themselves, except for its capital city, which is dug into a sweet cave network. Gilgalad's kingdom in Lindon is associated with regalness and power, but not necessarily architecture or crafting. Erigion is the nation where the elves live who like to make stuff. They're very unique that way. There are many extremely talented individuals who live there, and Celebrimbor is their unquestioned chief. In fact, Tolkien reiterates this in different ways in pretty much all of our sources on Celebrimbor. I'll give you a few examples. In the peoples of Middle-earth, the elf is described as, quote, great craftsmen of Erigion, end quote. The book Unfinished Tales uses the words, quote, the chief artificer of Erigion, end quote. The Silmarillion says, quote, and this one's a little longer, quote, In the second age, greatest of the smiths of Erigion, maker of the three elven rings, slain by... S- Oops. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. We'll get there soon enough. Anyway, Celebrimbor leads a group of craftsmen called the Gwaith Imirdain, or the people of the jewel smiths. The Silmarillion describes this as a group or a fellowship of craftsmen located in Erigion. This merry band spends their time honing their craft and working on different projects together, and the book gives them some serious street cred. It literally says, quote, In Erigion, the craftsmen of the Gwaithi Myrdain, the people of the jewelsmiths, surpassed in cunning all that have ever wrought, save only Feanor himself, and indeed greatest in skill among them was Celebrimbor, son of Curufin. End quote. To be the only second to Feanor is a huge deal. There are a lot of craftsmen in Middle-earth history. Now, part of the reason the Gwaithi Myrdain thrive is because of the already mentioned relationship that they strike up with the nearby dwarves of Khazad-dûm. As we already covered at length in our series on Narvi just before this, which I recommend you go back and listen to because that was a really fun kind of gem nugget that often gets skipped over. But anyways, Narvi is one of these dwarves of Khazad-dûm. And they're at the height of their civilization during this time. And the friendship that they create with Celebrimbor's people is mutually beneficial. But make no mistake, it doesn't take a lot of reading between the lines to realize that the elves are the ones who are pushing the relationship from day one. In fact, 
it's actually clearly stated throughout the source material. Let's take a look-see, shall we? In Appendix B of The Return of the King, it says that, quote, Later some of the Noldor went to Eregion, upon the west of the Misty Mountains, and near the west gate of Moria. This they did because they learned that Mithril had been discovered in Moria. The Noldor were great craftsmen, and less unfriendly to the dwarves than the Sindar. But the friendship that grew up between the people of Durin and the elven smiths of Eregion was the closest that there has ever been between the two races. We hear a very similar message in the book The Peoples of Middle-earth, where it says that Celebrimbor, quote, went to Eregion attracted by the rumors of the marvelous metal found in Moria, Moria Silver, to which he gave the name Mithril. In the working of this he became a rival of the dwarves, or rather an equal, for there was great friendship between the dwarves of Moria and Celebrimbor, and they shared their skills and craft secrets. End quote. I got one more here. Unfinished Tales connects Celebrimbor's love of crafting with his friendship with the dwarves, so it's the same idea, just from a little bit of a different perspective. The book says, quote, Celebrimbor had an almost dwarvish obsession with crafts, and he soon became the chief artificer of Eregion, entering into a close relationship with the dwarves of Khazad-dûm, among whom his greatest friend was Narvi. Which, hey, there's Narvi. Okay, I've got one more quote here, and I know I've got a lot of quotes in this one. There's just so many little pieces out there on Celebrimbor, and I want you to hear the actual words I'm trying to weave together into this coherent story. So, in the Silmarillion, it describes how, from the capital city of Eregion, Ostinethil, quote, the high road ran to the west gate of Khazad-dûm, for a friendship arose between the dwarves and elves such as has never elsewhere been seen to the enrichment of both those peoples, end quote. And I wanted to end on that quote because that last line sums all of this up. I, I love that description. The elves show up on the dwarves' doorstep looking for Mithril. And yet, in the end, the two groups end up fast friends, bonding over their shared love of smithcraft and enriching one another's kingdoms. In Unfinished Tales, it even goes so far as to point out that both groups profit from their association in a way that makes Eregion much stronger and Khazad-dûm more beautiful than either could have done on their own. So there's like a synergy there. And in the midst of this collective prosperity, Celebrimbor and Narvi strike up their famous friendship. They're the poster-child relationship for these two groups of people. It's, it's really cool. They make the doors of Durin together, with Narvi crafting the entrance itself and Celebrimbor decorating it with the words inscribed in moon-mirroring Ithildine. That's the, remember, that's the metal that he uses to write on the doors that reflects the, the moonlight. And that in, they include the famous line, say, friend, and enter. It's that stuff. So he's the one that writes it. Narvi makes the doors themselves. And I also mentioned in the last episode that Celebrimbor is connected to the creation of a pair of green, self-glowing gems called the Elfstone, or Elessar. The first of these has a very vague history, but one version of the story connects the second Elfstone in particular directly to Celebrimbor. In fact, he makes the stone at the request of Galadriel herself, who he actually even has a crush on in this one particular version of the story. Remember, we're working from a lot of drafts and different versions of these things as Tolkien was trying to develop them and, and flesh them out. So, in this one version, Galadriel asks him for a way to heal the wounds of Middle-earth, which jives a lot with the kind of Galadriel I think we're going to see in the Rings of Power show that's coming out in just a couple weeks. Celebrimbor thinks about it, and then he starts what is described as a, 
quote, long and delicate labor, end quote. And now this ends up being one of his greatest works apart from the rings of power themselves. The resulting stone is given to Galadriel, but when she gets one of the three elven rings later on, she doesn't need its healing power anymore. So instead, she passes it off to her daughter, Celebrion. Celebrion eventually gives it to her daughter, a gal named Darwin, and from there the stone is eventually left in the possession of Galadriel again in Lothlorien. And who does she give it to? None other than our boy Aragorn when the Fellowship of the Ring passes through Lothlorien. The ranger embraces the gift, which functions as kind of sort of an engagement ring stand-in, I guess, and it also becomes a mark that he sports as part of his claim to the throne of Gondor. It's, it's really important. In fact, it's one of those things that Aragorn's title is literally, he becomes known as Elessar. It's the name of the stone itself. See, it, it, with Tolkien, it all comes together sooner or later. Everything's got a purpose. And I really wanted to include that in this episode on Celebrimbor just because it shows how huge and impressive his skills are, not just in making these rings that we all associate with Sauron and the Lord of the Rings and the War of the Ring. This guy is genuinely talented. He's a craftsman who can make a stone that has an inherent power that can literally heal and preserve things. And then he goes and makes these rings after that. So he has a lot of skill. And he's feeding into this Lord of the Rings story that's coming and the entire Third Age of Middle-earth and the rest of the Second Age of Middle-earth. He's very important. Okay, so Celebrimbor and his Gwythi Myrdine thrive for centuries in their blossoming kingdom. They're good friends with the dwarves. They make a lot of cool stuff too, which they keep in a sort of storehouse treasury place called the House of the Myrdine. Oh yeah, and at one point along the way, uh, Celebrimbor also starts making some rings. Three of these he makes on his own but not before he forges 16 other rings, which he makes with some help from an unexpected ally. Alas, my friends, all good things must come to an end, and in the case of Celebrimbor, the making of the rings of power and the friendship that he creates while doing so, well, those are the beginning of a nasty downward spiral. But it's a slow slide into destruction, and it comes with some pretty interesting twists and turns. How slow are we talking? Let's just say his doom plays out for almost 500 years in kind of a decline and fall of the Roman Empire kind of negative trajectory, which is why we're nowhere near the end of this guy's story. Okay, so the beginning of the end takes place around 1200 years into the Second Age. Erigion is well over 400 years old at this point, and everything is hunky-dory in the thriving elven kingdom. Everyone is minding their own business when this really nice fella shows up out of nowhere. His name is Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, which, hey, that sounds pretty nice. Uh, except, oh, oh, wait, hang on. No, no, wait. Mm, uh, no, no, he's not a nice dude. Yeah, yeah, he's Sauron in disguise. Oops. In the Silmarillion, it says that after hiding for hundreds of years after his master Morgoth is defeated at the end of the First Age, Sauron starts to make trouble on his own account. He slowly builds up his power, picks out a nice piece of real estate in Mordor to set up shop, and eventually feels strong enough to tackle his age-old enemies again. Men aren't too hard to deal with, they're iconically corruptible and most of them are malleable enough. But elves? Well, they're immortal, and they know a thing or two. So rather than try to intimidate them or coerce them outright, Sauron puts on this fancy disguise. Remember, at this point he hasn't made the One Ring yet. This means he hasn't poured a ton of his inner, innate, organic power into something else. When his master Morgoth does that in the first stage, he keeps pouring his power into things. He becomes earthbound and trapped in his body, and he can't do as much as he could before. 
Sauron also has a similar trajectory, but at this point, it's he's not there yet. He has all of this power still. So, along with the bigger spiritual powers that are happening behind the scenes, he also retains enough power to shapeshift, which is a nifty thing to have in your back pocket. In fact, in a battle in the First Age, not long before this time, relatively speaking, Sauron literally turns into a wolf, a snake, and a monster, along with his own normal shape, all in one fight. Trust me when I say that this guy can shapeshift. He knows how to look like something else. This time, though, he doesn't look like he's getting ready to go to a Halloween party. No, he spins his evil magic and turns himself into a really, and I mean really, good-looking guy named Anatar. Yep, that Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. Then he sets out for the Elvish lands with the goal of trying to worm his way into their affections. And I'm not talking about some insecure dude trying to get in with the cool kids. I mean deliberate lies and subversion with the end goal of total control and domination. When he arrives at Lindon, the elven king Gilgalad and his second-in-command, Elrond, don't trust this suspicious stranger and they send him away. In fact, they're so thrown off by this Anatar guy that they also send warnings to the other elves to watch out for this peculiarly nice, charming fellow who's just wandering around offering to befriend and help people. Nobody does that. Never trust strangers, kids. Even if they offer you presents. If only the wise elves of Aregion had gotten that message into their immortal skulls a little bit sooner. In the Silmarillion, we hear a summary of Sauron's success and failure in this covert attempt to trick the elves into trusting him. It says, quote, Men he found the easiest to sway of all the peoples of Middle-earth, but long he sought to persuade the elves to his service. For he knew that the firstborn had the greater power, and he went far and wide among them, and his hue was still that of one both fair and wise. Only to Lindon he did not come, for Gilgalad and Elrond doubted him and his fair seeming, and though they knew not who in truth he was, they would not admit him to that land. But elsewhere the elves received him gladly, and few among them hearkened to the messengers from Lindon, bidding them beware. For Sauron took to himself the name of Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, and they had at first much profit from his friendship. End quote. The Peoples of Middle-earth book also talks about how Sauron plays on the desires of the elves of Rigion, in particular by appealing to their desire for knowledge and skill, and those are important here. The book says that, quote, Sauron is still fair to look on, and the elves of Rigion are won over by their desire of skill and knowledge, end quote. Sauron is a clever villain, too. He criticizes Gilgalad and Elrond for not helping him or trusting him, and points out how much good they could do if they just trusted poor old Anatar. He only wants what's best for everyone, right? Now, I know I'm being sarcastic, but there's actually an interesting note written by Tolkien's son, Christopher, that touches on this subject. It it toys with the idea that Sauron himself may not have been wholly evil with this whole Anatar shtick. It's interesting enough that I'm going to read the whole thing. Here we go. Quote, In a letter written in September 1954, my father said, At the beginning of the Second Age, he, Sauron, was still beautiful to look at, or could still assume a beautiful, visible shape, and was not indeed wholly evil, not unless all reformers who want to hurry up with reconstruction and reorganization are wholly evil, even before pride and the lust to exert their will eat them up. The particular branch of the High Elves concerned— the Noldor, or Loremasters, were always vulnerable on the side of science and technology, 
as we should call it. They wanted to have the knowledge that Sauron genuinely had, and those of Erigion refused the warnings of Gilgalad and Elrond. The particular desire of the Erigion elves, an allegory, if you like, of a love of machinery and technical devices, is also symbolized by their special friendship with the dwarves of Moria. End quote. Now, just to clarify, the words reformers, reconstruction, reorganization, and science and technology are all in quotes, so there's a certain caveat element to them being mentioned in here, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with Tolkien's view of the environment and of nature and of how machinery and the machine would come in and accelerate and push humanity into the point where it would harm these things, these natural ways. And that isn't just machinery in the sense of orcs building something or mankind accelerating and hurrying because of their limited lifespan. Even elves were subject to this, and the rings of power end up being this kind of, not just the rings of power, I guess, but Sauron coming in and providing all of this science and technology, this knowledge, was a way for them to accelerate this desire to an unhealthy level. It's very interesting. And if you're interested in hearing a little more on this, I actually talked about this in a recent interview I did with Robert Aramayo, who plays Elrond on the show. Uh, We talked about um, the ring that Elrond ends up getting, and Robert's answer was really, really good. It, It talks about this idea of elves and the machine and the rings being part of that unhealthy evolution toward pushing and accelerating beyond the natural order to get something done. And in this case, it's being connected even to Sauron, who is talked about not as a dark lord looking to corrupt and destroy, but there's words being used here like reformer reconstruction, reorganization, he is trying to control and fix in a sense, even if it's his own warped version of that. So it's it's a very interesting subject, the idea of these elves wanting to learn more from the dwarves, wanting to learn more from Anatar, wanting to figure out and learn more so that they can control this destiny and control this fate that they feel out of control of. So, depending on what you read, An evil, or at least a mostly evil Sauron, who is dead set on controlling everything and everyone, is disguised as Anatar the Lord of Gifts, and he shows up in Irigion, and Celebrimbor and the Gwaith Imirdain, desperate for skill and knowledge, welcome him with open arms. And that sets the stage. It's here, as he unwittingly welcomes Sauron into the fold of the people of the Jewelsmith, that we'll have to leave Celebrimbor until we can wrap up his story in the next and final episode of the season. And it's a doozy, friends. It's a doozy. Alright, that's it for now. Until next time. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. And despite the fact that I've memorized whole chunks of Tolkien at this point, it still takes quite a bit of work to pull each of these together. There are also some recurring expenses that come with keeping the show on the air. So, if you're interested in helping, I set up a way to toss a few dollars toward covering costs. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. That's buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. If you make a donation, thank you very much. And either way, I hope you'll stick around for all the fun. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, friends.